Good afternoon. Before we get started, uh, I was just asked to make a quick announcement um, about Ukraine. Many of us have asked about ways we can help the people of Ukraine and what Five Oaks might be doing um, to help bless those people who are going through that. Um, our impact team has some recommended ministries that we partner with, and they will be emailing you soon um, with links to people who are helping or on, and are on the ground there. If you'd like to check that out now, before you receive an email, you can do that at fiveoaks.church slash Ukraine. That's fiveoaks.church slash Ukraine. Well, I'm Danny Martin, and I'm your pastoral resident. And for those of you who don't know, you are witnessing history. That's right, some of you do know you're laughing. Because it is my first time preaching at one of our main services. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And Pastor Henry is hazing me. That's right, even before I came out, he, he had to come backstage to tell me how nervous he was. He was sick to his stomach. He was so nervous. That's what he told me. So not only did he tell me that, he also asked me to teach the final sermon in our Gospel Fellowship series, or the Fellowship of the Gospel, which is on Romans chapter 16. And for those of you who don't know about Romans chapter 16, it has 27 verses in it, and 16 of the verses are people's names. <laughs> it's one of those chapters in the Bible, it's just name after name, and he asked me to teach it for the first my first sermon that I'm preaching to you. <laughs> so some of you are thinking, boy, he's really setting the bar low. <laughs> if we can slip out of here, maybe we should. But all the kidding aside, Romans 16 can form us because it's a snapshot of everyday Christians who lived in a place and a time where their faith in Jesus was viewed as weird and would later come to be viewed as dangerous or even treasonous. Romans 16, in some ways, provides us the clearest practical picture of what gospel fellowship looks like. Maybe the clearest we've seen even in this entire series, because we're actually getting a look at the people who were there, and how their gospel fellowship expressed itself. So if you have your Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 16. If you don't have one, you can find one in the seat back in front of you, and the page you'll be looking for is 1140, 1140. While you're turning to that, one of our core values at Five Oaks is that though God's word is at times mysterious to us, it doesn't have to be a mystery. You can learn to see how the Bible can shape you and your family's lives for the better, and we aim to help you do that. So, Romans chapter 16 Verses 1 through 16, the names chapter. Here we go. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea, that's in Greece. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me, me as the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles, this will be in Greece and Turkey, are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Epenetus, 
who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, that's Turkey. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachys. Greet Achilles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to worship you, to encourage one another, and to hear from your word. We ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit as we look to the scriptures. Guide us and give us understanding. Strengthen us, renew us, and shape us by your truth that we might be equipped and empowered to walk in obedience to you. Amen. So as you can see, I was only sort of joking about all the names. Texts like this raise an instructive point for us as readers, and it's this. There are two ways to view the New Testament letters, and both are true. First, the New Testament letters, like Romans, are real letters that were written to real people. Romans is not a made-up document. I don't know if you realize this. It was not invented in the 4th century AD, like your conspiracy friend on Facebook likes to say around Easter. Everyone's got conspiracy friend on Facebook, and if you don't, you might be the conspiracy friend. <laughs> Do a heart check. It might be you. Romans is a real letter, and what we just read is its ending, its salutation. Ancient letter salutations don't look like our salutations because letter writing in ancient times was an ordeal. Ink and paper were expensive. Paper was handmade. You could not buy it at Staples. Handmade, organic, in small batches, paper. Sending a letter meant it had to be carried. No post office, no FedEx, no guys in little brown shorts to carry it for you. And writing and reading were pro professional skills reserved for an educated minority. Most people could not read and write. So sending a letter was a big investment. And that's why the salutation is so long and all these different people get a shout out. Because Paul couldn't just send a text message as we can today, such as this. You know, hello everybody, how's it going? Hey, let me do a quick one. You'll notice that Paul is using the Sprint network, which explains why he has to send letters. He's got America's worst network. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry if you use Sprint. So we should expect Romans, which is a real letter, to end like a real letter. Real letter, real people. So that's the first thing to understand. And the second is this. The New Testament letters, like Romans, are God's word. This means that though they are not written to us, they are written for us. They tell us what Christians should believe. They show us how to live. 
they set the bar for what it looks like in our lives when we see Jesus not just as a great teacher who said wise things, but as our Savior, our Lord, and our God who died and came back to life so that we could have new life through him. So the Bible is the word of God. It's Hebrews 4.12 tells us it's living and active, sharper than a sword, and that it judges the attitudes of our hearts. It is the book that reads us. And in this, God speaks to us through it. If we will listen to the Bible when it is taught to us, and if we will make reading it a part of our regular lives, God will use it to change us for the good. If you don't know that to be true today, I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room who would love to tell you about it. So that's our frame. Romans is a real letter originally sent to people who aren't us, but it's also God's word, which is for us right now. So that in mind, let's return to the text. A lot of people were referenced in Romans 16, 1 through 16, 29 in total for those of you who are like me, not good at math. They're men and women, working class and wealthy, educated and uneducated, Jewish, Roman, and Greek, and all things in between. And we'll focus on just a handful of them, and we'll hold them up to us like mirrors to model for us what gospel fellowship is and some of the ways it should look in our lives today. So here's the first one. Phoebe models gospel fellowship through servant leadership. Take a look back at the text, Romans 16, 1 through 2. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So the Romans didn't know Phoebe, and they couldn't check her resume on LinkedIn. So Paul begins the salutation by commending her and listing her credentials. Why? Well, there's a lot of liars running around back then. Liars were everywhere. They were all over the place. It was very common in the ancient world for traveling philosophers to go around and to charge money to give their teachings out. In fact, Paul even talks about this right after our text. It says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. So this was a common problem back then. And Phoebe was properly credentialed. But why did Paul tell the Romans to welcome her? Well, because she's the person who carried Paul's original letter to the Romans. Like the letter of Romans. This is the person who carried it. And remember, there's no post office to do this. So if you wanted to send a personal letter... You had to have a trustworthy person carry it for you. The Roman mail system was for the government, not for private citizens. So Paul writes Romans while he's in Greece, and Phoebe is from Greece. And so to bring this letter, she likely had to sail to Italy from Greece. And I did a little Googling on this. Google Maps says if you were to do today the trip Phoebe did, it would take you 19 hours one way by car with a delightful ferry ride in the middle. And it probably took Phoebe, however, several weeks, one way, by sea, and it was probably not a very delightful journey. 
Verse 2 says Phoebe is a benefactor, and a good alternative word for that would be patron, which means she was very involved in her local church and quite possibly bankrolled many of its expenses. On top of that, 16.1 says she's a deacon. Some older translations might read servant, but the word is deacon, which is a position of service in local churches. Deacons were people usually tasked to address the practical needs of the church and its members, so they would do uh, visit, uh, visit sick people and provide food and those sorts of things. Paul writes that Phoebe is a benefactor to many and to me, which means she very likely funded Paul's ministry in her area of Greece and may have allowed him to lodge in her home. She likely hosted worship services in her home, and her home would have been a safe harbor for any Christians passing through. This on top of whatever else she was doing in, at the church in Cancrea. So if Paul could trust anybody in the region to make sure the letter got where it was going, this was the person. It was Phoebe. When Paul says Phoebe was a deacon who was a patron, he's saying she was a servant who was a leader. Greece to Rome is far, even by today's standards. And long-distance travel in the ancient world was perilous. What if she didn't said no when Paul asked her to carry the letter of Romans to the Romans? She could have said no. Think about everything she already did. She was already bankrolling the church and hosting it in her house. She had done enough. But she didn't say no. She chose to serve at great cost to herself. And because of her service, Paul's letter got to Rome. And because the letter got to Rome, the letter changed lives. Because the letter changed lives, the letter was passed down. Because the letter was passed down, we just read it. And we just read it because she chose to serve. Gospel fellowship is marked by servant leadership like Phoebe's. We are blessed. I am pretty new around here, as you guys know. And I can tell you, there's a lot of Phoebes at Five Oaks. We got a lot of Phoebes at Five Oaks. Where are they? Well, thank you for asking. Well, they're caring for your little ones right now. They disciple your teens. They write our devotionals. They help lead you in worship. They design our website. They make sure there are refreshments for you. Out in the, when we have services, they sit on our board of directors. They set up our ladies' gatherings on Wednesday mornings. I don't think they do the brunch. Ever, I wish they did the brunch every week. You should, if you if you are a lady and you're you're in the area and you're just hanging out on a Wednesday, you really should be coming to the to the women's ministry on Wednesdays. The way they set up the tables, it's it's beautiful, and all the food that comes together. I'm like, man, when Martha Stewart start coming to Five Oaks, you know, it looks that good. <laughs> Phoebe welcomed you to church today. They reach out to the needy and hurting in our community and help us do the same. They made sure you have a readable worship guide, that your church's budget is funded, that your pastors are paid. And if you contact the church, if Phoebe will reply, and hundreds of people in this building every weekend leave a little bit of a mess, and if Phoebe makes sure that the mess gets cleaned. Part of having gospel fellowship is having leaders who are servants because Jesus was. Matthew 20 says this. 
Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what should we do about all these Phoebes here at Five Oaks? Romans 16.2 is a good start. Receive them in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give them any help they may need for they have been the benefactors of many people. And let's follow their lead by choosing to be servant leaders ourselves. The next people. Priscilla and Aquila model gospel fellowship through sacrificial hospitality. Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple who served churches all over the Roman Empire. They were old friends of Paul's, and they lived in Rome. To them, Paul says, starting in verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. So Paul first met them in the city of Corinth, Greece, where they'd been living since being kicked out of Italy by the Roman emperor Claudius. This was about the year 50, and it was one of several times that Roman emperors kicked out all the Jews or Jewish Christians from Rome. Very, very easy to look this up. It's historically verified. Priscilla and Aquila were exiles, making ends meet by practicing their trade of tent making. This also happened to be Paul's trade. So this is how the three of them became ministry partners in, and friends in Corinth. And Priscilla and Aquila may well have become followers of Jesus through Paul's ministry. Acts 18 tells us that they all lived and worked together for a year and a half before leaving the city of Corinth. So this adult married couple ended up hosting Paul, an unmarried adult man, in their home for a year and a half. And I think if we're honest, most of us wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> I don't know, who is this guy? Isn't that, he's not your brother. Or any, why was he living with us? But they had been changed thanks to Paul. So they sacrificed the comfort and privacy that most of us expect in our own home in hope of something better, gospel fellowship. There are times when gospel fellowship means sacrificial hospitality. Priscilla and Aquila's actions are an example of what it looks like to live this way. Not only did they demonstrate sacrificial hospitality to Paul by taking him into their home, but the gospel message Paul preached was stirring up trouble in Corinth. So the Jews who rejected Jesus were getting angrier and angrier at Paul and at the Jewish Christians. Romans 16.4 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila once risked their lives for Paul. The Greek says they stuck out their necks for him. Paul was staying in their home, and while he's working and preaching, associating with him is exposing them to risk because people wanted to silence Paul and stifle the message about Jesus. So you think, given all that, they might want to maybe get this guy out of the house. He's bringing a little bit of trouble down to the house. But they did not kick him out. They accepted the risk. They stuck out their necks. 
reminiscent of Jesus' words. In John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Priscilla and Aquila were willing, willing to risk showing hospitality in a situation many of us would probably pass on. Sometimes loving others is inconvenient, expensive, uncomfortable. This is Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you may be familiar with her story. In the late 1990s, Rosaria Butterfield was working as a professor in the English and Women's Studies Department at Syracuse University in upstate New York. As an avowed feminist activist living in a same-sex relationship, she believed that Christians hated her and aimed her sharp intellect and skill with the written word squarely at the Christian church and at evangelicals in particular. She published an article criticizing Promise Keepers, a Christian men's organization. Some of you are old enough to have attended Promise Keepers events, I'm sure. Got the uh, Hawaiian shirt in your closet still. A local pastor and his wife read her hit piece, and they emailed her and invited her to dinner at their house. So she thought it would be a great opportunity to do opposition research to learn how bad Christianity was by grilling the pastor and his wife at their own dinner table and taking what she'd learn as ammunition in her crusade. But God has a way of turning what we mean for evil into what he means for good. She had a wonderful time at dinner. She expected a sermon, but instead got dessert. She came back next week. She kept coming back. For two years, she joined this couple in their home for Sunday dinner. She ate with people she never would have otherwise even talked to. She sat in a living room and sung songs out of a hymn book because she had always loved singing and had so few opportunities to do it within her social circles. She heard the Bible taught by people who understood it and believed that God uses it to make people new. She began reading the Bible herself. And after two years, she found new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Of that pastor and wife who modeled gospel fellowship through sacrificial hospitality, Rosaria Butterfield later wrote this. The way they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the, of the theology they were teaching. They didn't see me as a project, but as a neighbor Hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors and takes neighbors and makes them the family of God. As you might imagine, her new faith didn't go over well with the English and Women's Studies departments at Syracuse, didn't go over well with her partner, didn't go over well with her friends or her colleagues. She later said, I lost everything but the dog. Jobless, homeless, exiled from her people. After going through this experience of losing everything but the dog, the self-described activist married a pastor in 2002, became a homeschool mom, and today is one of the most in-demand authors and speakers on the topics of biblical sexuality and biblical hospitality. About sacrificial hospitality, she says something we should all write down. Hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. Hospitality in the Greek means love of strangers, to befriend and love those who are not our people. 
It's practiced primarily through caring for a person's physical needs, primarily for food and shelter. And in our individualistic society, it's become a lost art. We have a hospitality industry in this country. It does not seem we have a hospitality culture. I have found that most, the most hospitable people are the ones living in their own senses of exile. I have experienced, personally experienced sweet hospitality from middle-class Americans who look and believe like I do. And I have too experienced sweet hospitality from the homeless in California, the foreigner in El Salvador, and the refugee in Chicago. Hospitality is not charity. Hospitality is the love of strangers. The most hospitable people in the world share one thing in common. They are the people Jesus calls poor in spirit. They are those who recognize their complete dependence upon God. The Apostle Peter tells us that we Christians are strangers and exiles. Because our real home is not this world. It's God's kingdom. We sometimes forget that it is we who are the strangers, the exiles, the ones whose greatest hope is yet to come. And how we live in the here and now demonstrates where our loyalties truly lie. Years after first meeting them in Corinth, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, Priscilla and Aquila have returned to Rome. And he greets not just them, but the church that meets in their home. They never stopped modeling gospel fellowship through sacrificial hospitality. And God used their hospitality to change the world. When Priscilla and Aquila invited the Apostle Paul into their life, they couldn't have known how important he would become to spreading the good news about Jesus and that they would be friends for life. That older couple who invited Rosaria Butterfield into their home probably didn't realize either that by inviting a liberal English professor from the local university to dinner, God would use their hospitality to rescue her from sin and death and unleash a tremendous force for good into the world. When Jesus reigns in your family, your house becomes a church. Your house may be the only church, or maybe the church God wants to use to reach people who would never darken the door of this building. I wonder if we're willing to stick out our necks by welcoming strangers into our lives and into our fellowship. I wonder if God wants to use our hospitality to release tremendous good into the world. Number three, the Roman Christians model gospel fellowship through unity, not uniformity. When we look at all the people named in Romans 16, 1 through 16, we see a cross-section of ancient society. Homeowners and house servants following Jesus together in community, singles and couples and men and women, working class and wealthy, educated and uneducated, Jewish, Roman and Greek, and everything in between. They met for church in homes like Priscilla and Aquila's because it wasn't legal for Christians to own church buildings at that time. Some had once been thrown out of their homes by the Roman government. They had a sense of fellowship and unity that is difficult to replicate apart from sharing a foxhole with someone. And this unity didn't erase, but rather transcended their outward differences. Because gospel fellowship creates unity, not uniformity. Uniformity tells us that everyone at our church should look the same, talk the same, be in the same stage of life, eat the same kind of food, have the same kind of job, same median income, same hobbies, 
same politics, same, same, same. Uniformity is the illusion of unity on the basis of outward appearances and worldly categories. But gospel fellowship is the reality of unity on the basis of Jesus Christ. Gospel fellowship does not mean uniformity. It means unity within diversity. Within unity and diversity, we lean into our true identity in Jesus as children of God. Because as the Bible says in the old King James, God is no respecter of persons. When all of us stand before God, he won't ask to see our voter registration card. He will not demand our birth certificate. The GPA you may be stressing about right now will be inconsequential. He won't ask you to self-identify your race, gender, or sexuality. He won't care who's on your Twitter feed or which news network you watch. He won't do a soft credit check. You will not impress him with your resume. He will not ask who we are, but whose we are. He will ask not what we have done, but what we have allowed him to do through us. God equips and calls his people to serve in various capacities, and he uses our diverse upbringings and circumstances to do this. God, in his wisdom, understands that oftentimes the open door to Jesus starts with people who share those outward commonalities. And the truth is that some people don't want to talk to a pastor. They don't want to come to your church, but they'll come to your barbecue. They'll get to know you because you have kids in the same sport as they do, or they'll sense that their traumatic background isn't so different from yours, maybe build a friendship on that basis. Outward commonalities can be the slightly open door, showing others that deep down there is something fundamentally different about you and the difference is Jesus. The church needs lots of different kinds of people for exactly this reason. Within this, God allows us to maintain our essential Christian unity as well as our outward diversity for the same reason that our bodies are not made only of hands or of eyes or of feet. Every part of the body is needed for it to function optimally. So as Paul wrote earlier in Romans, for just as each of us has one body with many members, that means parts, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. When the Apostle Paul talks to the people of God about what it means to be the people of God, he says things like this in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise in Colossians 3. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Unity means that though differences between us exist, they do not most importantly define our gospel fellowship. Jesus does. When the Romans model for us unity over uniformity, we find that in reflecting them, our focus is less on us all looking the same or having the feeling of fellowship that comes from sharing in incidentals with others. Rather, it's the person, it is the person in whom we find our ultimate identity, Jesus Christ. The New Testament's focus is on the assured truth that by having fellowship with Jesus through faith, that he died for us so we could have new life in God, we all share in a fellowship that will never end. We call this belief gospel, we call people who believe this gospel Christians, and we call the Christian community that enjoys this fellowship church. Romans 16 has a lot of people's names in it. It's a snapshot of everyday followers of Jesus who lived in a place, in a time, where their faith sometimes made them homeless. It's about the community God formed in the most unexpected of places by lots of different people. It's about what Jesus did in and through these people's servant leadership, their sacrificial hospitality, and the unity of their gospel fellowship. It models what God will do in and through us if we will turn to Jesus and let him show us who we truly are. When we reflect God's word in our lives, we reflect God's intention for gospel fellowship. And when the world sees us living this way, truly living this way, they will hunger and thirst for what God offers to anyone who will come to him with open hands and an open heart. Worship team, if you guys want to start making your way out. As we reflect on the hunger and thirst Jesus satisfies, we celebrate unity with one another and with Jesus through communion as his, di his dinner table, as it were. He invites us to eat together to remember the forgiveness of our sins, our new life in him, and the fellowship we found. We read in Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Let's eat together. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink it together.
now we'll have some prayers of the people from MLA. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who hears us when we pray. We bring you prayers for our city, our country, our world, and our church. For our city, country, and world, we pray for Ukraine. We pray for the leaders at the emergency summits that took place. We ask for wisdom for the U.S. and NATO officials. We pray for the 10 million Ukrainians who have fled their homes. We pray for those who have been separated from their families and for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for safety, protection, comfort, and courage for the Ukrainian people. We ask that Putin's plans for evil and destruction be stopped. We pray for peace. We ask for provision and comfort for those experiencing loss and damages from the storm system that produced severe storms and tornadoes in Texas, Louisiana, and other areas in the southeastern United States. We continue to pray for the people of Afghanistan who are facing malnutrition and food insecurity. We pray for food assistance programs and for relief from the hunger crisis. We also pray for the humanitarian crisis in Myanmar and for an end to the violence and mass killings committed against ethnic minorities. Lord, hear our prayers. For our missions partner, Father, we lift up Rose Lindquist and her work in mentoring gospel missionaries within Greater Europe Mission. We pray for those she mentors, that they would continue to be encouraged as Rose comes alongside them. Thank you, Lord, for the unique ways you've gifted her to be able to empathize and motivate those on the mission field who are hurting. We pray for her trip to Colorado in July as she'll be ministering to both missionaries going out and those transitioning back home. We lift Rose up to you, God, and pray you would continue to encourage her, Lord. Hear our prayers. For our church, both Five Oaks and the church who is Christ's body around the world, Father, we ask that you would help us to be a church living on mission, to share the gospel with those who are far from you. Unite us and bind us with your truth. Jesus, teach us to be your hands and feet. Remind us that we are to be a reflection of you in all that we do. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and soften our hearts to the needs around us. Shine through us and use us that we might be a light in the darkness and a refuge in the storm. Lead us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We ask all these things in your name, and with one voice, we pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.